So over the course of this retreat, we've been offering you a variety of practices, techniques, and approaches. Um, The basic ones being this um, triad of the breath contemplation, uh, breath meditation, uh, cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, and now the awareness emptiness practice. And I I've spoken about this a number of times, you know, the steadiness of the breath, the warmth of the Brahma-viharas, the spaciousness of the awareness, and, and how they really support each other. Triangles are said to be one of the most stable things, or tripods, or something like that. Um, and I think they do uh, really support each other. But doesn't it seem a long time ago we started breath meditation? Those many days, weeks ago, and now even within the awareness practice, a range of ways of approaching this practice, of cultivating um, this, this awareness of awareness. I hope you're getting the meta, M-E-T-A, picture of, of what we're offering, which is skillful means. You know, there's no better practice, best practice, right way to do this. All of us will have our own um, path, our own uh, unfolding here. And learning what works for us is so much more important than trying to hang on to any one practice or any one technique. And then in the bigger picture, I think Guy's already spoken about this, that there are these two, you could say, diverging views of what the path of Buddhist practice is. The first one being that it's a path of gradual cultivation. And if you didn't know, hopefully you know now that that's the path that you're on or that we're on. The gradual path, early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, is a, is a um, path of, of cultivation and purification. And there are these um, sort of pithy ways of understanding it to cultivate the wholesome and to purify the unwholesome. There's this classic um, verse from the Dhammapada that says, doing no evil, engaging in what is skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas, not just the Buddha, but the Buddhas, all of the Buddhas. And so this is pointing to what we do in our practice. We deepen um, through insight and wisdom, um, through changing perceptions from unskillful to skillful. So the uh, develop, engaging in what's skillful isn't just about sila. It's really about what's skillful uh, for the mind and heart as far as freedom. So um, changing our perception of the three characteristics, you know, the unwise un- perception is that things are permanent, that, that uh, we can find happiness in these impermanent things and that there's something central at, at, that's at the heart of all of our experience. Wise perception is no. Uh, anicca anatta, anicca dukkha anatta. And then releasing or purifying the fetters, the taints, the kalesas, greed, aversion, delusion, all the different ways that these obscuring qualities show up. This is, you know, in, in a few words, talking about this gradual path of purification. And then the other view is Buddha nature. This mind. Its nature is unobscured, radiant, clear, ceaselessly responsive, etc. And all we need to do is recognize that. Sorry, this microphone's doing its thing again. 
that freedom is available right here and now, profound and deep freedom through just the recognition, the pure, clear recognition of that mind. And we've talked about how so many traditions and practices have developed out of these approaches and a lot of debate and dogma also, you know, the different Dharma wars that have happened over these thousands of years. Um, for us, I know certainly for me, and I, this is where I'm, I really appreciate Joseph and his book One Dharma, some of you may have read it, where he also struggled with this. How do I reconcile these two seemingly different views of the path, of the mind, of consciousness itself? And his basic end result was don't have to fight about it. Don't even have to decide that they're both skillful means, different ways of seeing or practicing, and we can use both. We can benefit from both, see what works for us. And there's a, a great teacher, um, 12th century Korean teacher, Shinul, and there's a quote from him in the study guide on page 8, quote 45. He has a book called Tracing Back the Radiance, where he talks about, instead of gradual cultivation and at the end awakening, he talks about sudden awakening and then gradual cultivation. You realize the mind's natural radiance first, then you cultivate it, then you establish it. Um, and his, his theme is you need to learn to act as well as to be enlightened. So what he says is, although one has awakened to the fact that one's original nature is no different from that of the Buddhas, the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly, and so one must continue to cultivate while relying on this awakening. Through this gradual permeation, one's endeavors reach completion. Hence, it is called gradual cultivation. But it's kind of turned the other way around. And so, as I say, the, it, it's more what works, what, what our experience is, um, the bigger picture, rather than this is the right way, that's the wrong way. And always remembering what we're practicing for. It's not to get special experiences. It's not to lay claim to awareness in any shape or form, but for the possibility of freedom freedom here and now, and greater and greater degrees of freedom in the gradual cultivation, the ending of suffering, and then the beautiful qualities of the heart, of the Brahma-viharas, of compassion and kindness and generosity. That's the, We always have to step back and remember that as we can get kind of focused on um, trying to get somewhere. And so this range of practices, range of techniques, um, has different effects. So we have to kind of have these sort of feedback loops coming. Is the practice that we're doing going basically in the direction our aspirations um, are pointing to? Not in any grasping way, but just some kind of trust. Um, and even the... I don't want to say basic practice, our foundation practice of learning to relate wisely to objects. That's really skillful, to relate wisely to the body. For many of us, it's like, oh, I have a body. Okay, let's start to learn about this. Or to relate wisely to our heart, to our emotions. This is huge 
for most of us. We didn't come in knowing that or get taught that growing up. So that's really important and an ongoing exploration. So we use the right tool for the, for the job. You know, you don't try to screw in a screw with a hammer. Don't try to uh, use the wrong tool. It's like what's needed here and having that flexibility of mind, of, of a willingness to do what works. I've been saying to people in the meetings over and over again, don't forget, you know, these practices that we did of the breath and Brahma-viharas, of your mindfulness practice, of, of investigation, of vipassana. So beneficial here to balance our energies, to um, work with the hindrances, to reduce reactivity, and to deepen insight. This is all valuable, just different ways of freeing the heart and mind. All are really useful. And Asayadu Tejaniya says, meditation is the work of the mind, but we're using the mind to understand the mind. And as one teacher says, we're using a very imperfect tool to do this work. And so we have to have a lot of compassion and patience as we do this. We know how crazy this mind is, right? And then we're trying to use it for these deep and profound ways of seeing. I think I already used this quote. It's in the study guide by Wei Wu Wei. What we are looking for is doing the looking. Is this kind of Aikido move. But the mind is a mysterious thing. Even neuroscientists, people who study the mind, using all of the research techniques that they can, don't completely understand how it works. I remember going to, I think it was a weekend with Dan Siegel, who's, I should have looked up what he is. I think he's a, he might not be a neuroscientist, but he certainly studies in that area um, and writes on it. And he said, he was so frustrated by this um, inability to literally just define what mind is that he convened a weekend or four-day whatever workshop with neuroscientists to see if they could hammer out a definition. And it said it took them days and days of arguing and debating and trying things on until they could finally come up with something they could agree on. And what they agreed on was pretty vague. This is what they came up with. The mind can be defined as an, embo- as an embodied process that regulates the flow of energy and information. <laughs> so I guess they got to where you can't argue with that, but it, it doesn't, you know, it's not like it's completely clarifying of the mystery of how the mind actually, I think we've said, from this brain, how does the mind get created. They, they don't really know. And so that's as good as they could come up with. But instead of using fMRIs and all that kind of thing to study the mind and doing all of these experiments and all these poor helpless college students who are always the subject of these mysterious experiments where they're told they're doing one thing and the experiment is totally about something else. As someone has said, this has totally skewed the understanding of of the mind because they're all based on 21-year-old male college students. It's like, that's the subset. It's not the world of the mind. But anyway, that's a digression. 
We're exploring the mind through our minds, through our direct experience, not theoretical, not debating it, but what can we know about this mind, this mind here, and this opening to the possibility of the vastness of mind, the vastness of awareness. You know, can it seem like that awareness is everywhere? If you've read anything of the Buddha's mind, you know, he was said to be omniscient and had a vast cosmology, not only remembering the past and past lives of himself and countless beings, but this vast cosmology. We're just using our six senses, right? But still we intuit this vastness. We have images from NASA, right, of the Hubble telescope pointing outwards, these beautiful, amazing images, if our minds touch those images, is that how vast our mind is? Or even the inner space, you know, when they do electron microscopes or MRIs and you can see, you know, the detail of this body, our minds can know that too. Um, And and through that kind of that research, that, that scientific view, we know there's more space than matter, even in this, right? We know that too. But more important is this direct knowing, this direct intuiting of the nature of this mind. And so as we use the mind to understand the mind, we need to understand all of the things that influence this mind. I've, I've had the experience quite often of, of being at the beach on a beautiful, clear, sunny day, not even a breeze, yet the waves are just pounding in, right? And I'm like, how, how can that be? There's no storm, there's, there's no drama here on the land. And what it is is these storms way out in the Pacific, churning up the ocean, moving these currents of water until they reach land. And the ocean is such a good uh, metaphor for the mind because it has its translucent places at the edge that we can see and perhaps swim in and understand. And then these depths, I just read something this morning, I think it was, where they said, we know less about the depths of our ocean than we do about Mars. It's so mysterious down there. And these researchers had come across, they'd managed to video the the giant squid, you know, this amazing being that lives down there. And they said, it's so mysterious. Our minds are a little like that. Maybe you've met some giant squids in there that have come up. (laughs) Tangled us all up. So we need to be willing to recognize both the nature of the mind, but all of the forces that influence this mind. Um, Because we bring to this practice all of our usual tendencies of grasping and clinging and identification, taking things to be I, me, and mine, judging, fixing, comparing. Done any of of that recently? (laughs) But what happens as we are practicing with the mind in this way, these movements of mind 
can become even more subtle. You know, they're often subtle enough that we don't see them, but here they can be really subtle. The kind of grasping or clinging that happens in these kinds of practices. So for all of us, it's navigating this and finding a balance between trusting your experience, and I've been saying that to people over and over again, you know, take what you, what, what you see, trust that. When you turn to the nature of mind, trust that. And also a willingness to see or acknowledge if there is any clinging in that, any holding on, any forcing, any over-efforting to make something happen. We need to recognize this. And for me, I, I think I mentioned this in one of my earlier talks, doing a lot of concentration practice was so helpful in learning about this, you could say, balanced effort or right attitude, um, that you can't do concentration practice, certainly, but this practice as well through sheer force of will. You know, I'm going to, nature of mine, open to it. With the breath, I talk about you have to fall in love with the breath and you have to surrender to it. You can't keep trying to hold on to it through force of will. Here we're working with a, a, a more subtle object than even the breath. So how do we relate to it wisely? Um, what I think is important is that we keep refining our understanding of what we're experiencing. Whatever we see when we look at the nature of mind, it can, and then the word is always hard, deepen, become more clarified, perhaps you could say become more empty. It can always deepen. I know that through my concentration practice, but it's the same here. And so how we're approaching it in this month, why we have the study guide, is we have teachings and pointers um, of, of the practices and, and the experience from our guides, from the Buddha, from the text, from these other teachers. And it's really helpful to have those as a, as a framework or as a reference point. But they're often pointing to ex- an experience we don't think we've had. We don't think we know. And so it's hard not to want you know, these beautiful experiences of the awakened mind, the luminous mind, even these words the nat- about the nature of mind. It's like, oh, that sounds so good. It's hard not to want to see the mind and see its luminosity and see its clarity and its radiance and its response. But awareness and emptiness, not just awareness and emptiness. Where's the empty? What's emptiness? I can remember, again, doing concentration practice with Joseph as my teacher and getting to quite subtle states of mind. And, you know, Joseph is a tinkerer, if you've ever worked with him, and he's always good on technique. And one day he gave me a a resolve, an intention that was quite refined and subtle. And, you know, it's like, okay. I'd wait till my mind was really quiet, a lot of stillness. And then I'd, you know, arouse this intention And every time I'd be sitting there so peacefully, I could up periscope. (laughs) Did something happen? What's meant to happen? Did it happen? Did I miss it? What? 
And then, oh no, you know, you've ruined it. You're grasping. Look. I can't, I remember going back to Joseph and saying, I can't do it. It's exhausting. Every time the mind, even in, I'd be so peaceful. And then the mind would grasp onto it. And I remember Joseph looking at me so kindly and he just said, it has to be okay that the wanting is there. It has to be okay because it is there. And it's natural that the heart wants this deepening. It's natural. And that was such a relief. And then when (laughs) this happened, it's like, oh, there you are. It's okay. Down periscope. Down periscope. Because I didn't, I didn't get, it was my reaction to the wanting that was more disturbing than the wanting itself. And so this is really important. If we see it, it doesn't have to be sticky. Just let it go. But we have to see it. We have to be willing to see it. And for all of us, we want affirmation. We want to be seen, Right? We want to go to teachers or to books or to references or to whatever. Am I doing it right? Is this experience it? And you're like, you know, that thing, is this experience? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> what was this experience? I don't know. Is this normal? If you, a lot of people come and say, is this okay? Is this, I always say, yes. <laughs> because you're having it, so it's in the range right? You're having it. But the bigger picture is you have to start trusting your experience and knowing it for what it is. And this is such a big shift when we really start to do this. You know, again, in a framework, not, you know, we charge off, I know know what I'm doing and I don't need any guidance. But the Buddha said about his teaching, ehipasiko, come and see for yourself, and opanayiko, it's onward leading, and I've actually been told it can also mean inward leading. But basically, like I was saying before, it's going in the direction, not in any manipulative way, but in the basic direction of, of more freedom. We have to trust that for ourselves. Otherwise, we get caught up in knots, and Mara has his way with us. The doubts, the hindrances, the... The, the guess, the, you know, the, the, the not trusting. And the Buddha talked about four kinds of students. Some of you know the old modes of practice. See if you see where you fit into this. There are students who go very quickly and don't have any pain. Students who progress quickly but have a lot of pain. Students who progress slowly but don't have any pain. And students who progress slowly with a lot of pain. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I know I think I'm in that fourth category. It always feels like difficult and challenging, you know, and there's so much of that is the judgment. Where's the insight? Where's the bliss? Where's the awareness? Everyone else is asking questions about awareness. Where is awareness? I, I spent a long time, I can still do it, of course, with that judging, comparing. You know, where's the catharsis? Where's this deep opening? Where's the bliss that I hear people talking about? It wasn't happening. It wasn't happening for me. 
And there's a whole practice I had to learn in Vipassana about just accepting, you know, a lot of time it was calm, it was equanimity, but I really judged it. But as, you know, I did more retreats and longer retreats, but especially doing these cultivation practices, the metta, the brahma-viharas, the anapanasati, deepening in the concentration, really shifted that for me. It brought me so much faith in these teachings and these practices. It, it, It gave me a connection to the lineage. I've said to some people here already, I felt like I was reading a 2,600-year-old instruction manual, and it made sense. It was like something quite mysterious, excuse me, was happening, that I was, it was very impersonal, but it was um, very conducive to faith and uh, conviction. And that this mind could be trained these words that I love from the Buddha, the mind becoming malleable, wieldy, steady, this is possible. And those practices were so valuable when I turned to doing more of these kind of awareness nature of mind practices. I think much more challenging if the mind doesn't have some degree of steadiness, why we um, devised this retreat this way so that we had that steadiness that we're only doing it after we've been here almost for three weeks of practice so as i said this is the gradual path that we're on with the openness to the immediacy of awakening because when can awakening happen the only place it can happen is in the present moment but the reassuring thing is the buddha said over and over again it goes in one direction only goes in one direction. I've always loved, he gives a lot of analogies like this, but this is one. Just as the river Ganges inclines towards the sea, slopes towards the sea, flows towards the sea, and extends all the way to the sea, so too the Buddha's assembly with its homeless ones, they're the monastics, and its householders inclines towards Nibbana, slopes towards Nibbana, flows towards Nibbana, and extends all the way to Nibbana. I love that that imagery. And it includes us, householders, also going in one direction only. And so this is how we hold both. You know, the gradual cultivation, but the, the freedom that's available in the here and now. And so we start learning about this mind and what supports this mind. Deepening, opening, stilling, calming, becoming more free. It's always simpler than we think. I didn't, I didn't look up, I've said it to a few people, that the four qualities where, you know, it's so close we can't see it, so... It's in the study guide somewhere. Joseph talks about um, how his practice, probably still, I haven't asked him recently, but for a long time, he, he took a line from the suttas, and, which was nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And he said in his practice, he would just practice non-clinging. He would see clinging and release it. That was the heart of his practice. 
to do that, you have to notice the clinging. Again, I'll quote Ajahn Sumedho. He, he would say about anything, so in this case, you have to know clinging to know non-clinging. And he'd say you have to know uh, anger to know non-anger. It's like, not permission, but we need, we, we need to know the nature of clinging so we can really understand what non-clinging is like. I collect uh, cartoons on meditation, um, and many of them, especially longer ago, you know, you could tell that people didn't really understand what meditation was. They were always sort of very stereotyped or whatever. But some of them are getting more sophisticated. I think these people actually are learning something. So this one, a couple is watching television. They're sitting on the couch. And the television, you know how they have the television kind of jumping out, jumping because it's blaring out this message. And the message is, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? So let's not hope you don't get chucked off the island for relentless clinging to the self. But it is, um, it's a hindrance. It's a hindrance. And we have to be willing to notice when the mind is moving in those ways. And as I said, it can get more and more subtle. As this practice deepens, any practice in, in our tradition, but Vipassana, this practice, will feel the benefits. Many, many fruits can appear. Some teachers call them spiritual goodies. You know, even things like pity. You know, it's like, oh, that sounds, I want that. But they can also become obstacles. So here's a list of the potential effects of deep Dharma practice. How do they sound to you? Illumination. Dharma knowledge, rapture, that's pity, calm, bliss, faith, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, and attachment. Attachment's a bit of a giveaway, but the others all sound pretty good, right? These are actually, or can be, the corrupt, what are called the corruptions of insight. These are distortions of practice. They seem amazing. They can feel amazing. But if we get attached to any of them as being it, or certainly being mine, they're then distortions or corruptions of the path. And there's this great quote from Mahabua, a great Thai meditation master. It's on page 12, quote 75, um, in, in brief, I've got a longer quote that I'll use. So this is talking about his own practice. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort that could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in my mind to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? I, I, I wasn't going to say this, but every time I say marvel, you look so marvelous. <laughs> Who is that? Billy Crystal? Sorry. 
Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant in full force. Sounds great, right? But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself to the, expo- the, to the point of exclaiming deludedly in the heart without being conscious of it, if we speak on the level of refined dhamma, it was a kind of delusion. It was amazed at itself. Why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of dhamma spontaneously arose. This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone was speaking in the heart, although there was no one there speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. That is what it said. Basically, there's a landing there, an identification with this marvelous mind, with this luminous radiance, so subtle. I mean, it sounds marvelous, right? We'd love to have that experience. But it's not a place to land, even in this luminosity of mind, the brilliance, the beauty of mind. Nagarjuna, that great spiritual teacher, says, people who don't know about emptiness can be taught. Those who are possessed of the view of emptiness are said to be incorrigible. And it's like we don't want to hold on to this too in the usual way we have of relating to experience, even on this subtle level. And so that's what I mean about always willing to see, can it, can it deepen? Can it be a deeper letting go? There's a great sutta that talks about this practice of refining um, the subtlety of the mind. It's uh, um, Majjhimanikaya 121, the Chula Shunyata Sutta, the lesser discourse on emptiness. And I love this sutta. If you're in APP, I'm sure you'll do it. That's the Advanced Practitioner Program where we do a lot of these teachings. We either did it in APP 1 or you'll do it in APP 2. Um, and it's a, it's a sutta on how this refinement of mind, in this case through concentration, happens by letting, seeing, oh, I should say, by getting to some level of purification or steadiness or concentration, and then seeing the deficiency in that. Another word is the disturbance in that. Um, the essence of the sutta is on page 7, quote 33, and one of the things that shifts in it, can shift in our relationship to the suttas is when we see them not as kind of dry, dusty old texts, but they're practice instructions. And this one certainly is. And it's a deep pointing both uh, of insight, but certainly of um, concentration. And what it's, at its heart, it's pointing to that on this relative level, everything is conditioned. You know, it's only Nibbana that's the unconditioned. So arising out of other conditions. And just a little uh, moment to talk about definitions of emptiness. Guy's going to talk more uh, about emptiness in his next talk. But we've used that word a lot without 
clearly defining it, and I, I'm not going to go into it in, in a lot of detail, but just to say the simplest definition is one we've used is kind of empty of stuff. You know, I talked about when this room was first built and was empty and then things came in. We can see that in the mind when the mind is empty of thoughts. There's that literal uh, quality of emptiness that's very freeing. But an important definition of emptiness is this one that nothing on the relative plane is um, free, is inherently self-existing. It's always cause and effect arising out of condition, dependently arisen. Um, this is uh, the emptiness of phenomena. There's some quotes on that in the in the guide. And perhaps, oh, I don't know, is it the most important one? Empty of self. The, in, as we look, as we turn to our direct experience, we can't find a solid, enduring self that we can control. This mind, this experience is empty of self. These are some of the basic understandings of what we mean by emptiness. And so this, this uh, sutta is called Lesser Discourse on Emptiness. And it's given in a very quiet setting away from a lot of people and the Buddha tells Ananda his attendant that he abides in emptiness and he says the village and everything it contains is disturbing and again you know if he thinks a village is disturbing imagine what he'd think of where we usually live and what's the most disturbing thing is the it's not you know I was going to pick that up like a phone you know the the world that's there in our pockets these days um But he says, the village and everything in it is disturbing, as in it's stimulating. It's it's, there's the push and pull. And he says, a practitioner not attending to the perception of village, not attending to the perception of people, attends to the signalness, singleness dependent on the perception of forest. So a forest is more calming, less disturbance than a village. That your experience? Yeah, we've talked about how nature calms and quiets the mind. Their mind enters into the perception of forest and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. They understand thus, whatever disturbances that that there might be dependent on the perception of village, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of people, those are not present here. There is only present this amount of disturbance, namely that that singleness dependent on the perception of forest. They understand this field of perception, empty of village, empty of people, present only this non-emptiness. So even the forest isn't empty, the the perception of forest. Thus they regard it as empty of what is not there, but as to what remains, they understand that that which is, they und, what remains there, they understand that which is present, thus this is present. Now this teaching is a very subtle and deep, I'm not expecting you to get it, but it's just this refinement, you know, from the city the village seems quiet, from the village the forest seems quiet, but even the forest, is not empty in that true sense of the word. And so the mind pulls back, recedes, 
from taking up even the perception of forest. And it goes beyond that to the deep states of concentration. But the main thing I want to point to is this theme. What was disturbing, or what, what seemed okay to us, as the mind quietens and the perceptions refine, becomes disturbing. And so this deeper and deeper letting go and quieting and stilling. Not rejecting, so it's not like I need everything to be quiet, all of the rest of you people, too much non-emptiness, go away. It's not, because these are all perceptions. You notice it says the perception. It's in the perceptions that the shift is happening. It doesn't mean the stuff has to go away. But we just keep seeing, is there in the perceptions what the, the translation here is, a disturbance, something that's ruffling the mind. And then what would it be like to let go of that? We can't do it by throwing it away, again, by demanding that everyone leave and every noise doesn't come to our ear, every insect doesn't bite. But it is this inclining. I talked about it in, I think, my talk on concentration about how the meditation maps always peak and then incline to some quieter, more subtle state. This is what's happening here. And it's the subtlest shifts of energy. You know, we we can't lean into it, grasp, hold on to it. We can't, oh, if I just could get rid of that irritation, then I'd be okay. It's very subtle. And sometimes it's not even in words. It's just a little leaning forward. I, and, and if the words were there, it would be something like, I want or I don't want this. And this is the subtle selfing or clinging that I spoke about earlier. We are used to, hopefully, seeing that the selfing, we often notice the self when we're in struggle or aversion, some reactivity, and working with that important part of our practice. But on this subtler level, how do we notice when that mind is doing its thing, its habit? If people have liked that quote, I think I gave it to us, where he talked about space is an absence of pressure. And someone said, they also heard him say, space takes off pressure. What's pressure? Contraction. It's always selfing, right? It's always some way we've taken things to be I, me, or mine. And we we grip. It's, it, it's very energetic. It's very visceral can happen on a subtle energy level. But the more we're willing or attuning into that, that's then the doorway for releasing it. And it's why we keep emphasizing the relaxing, not just because it feels nice, but the pressure or the sense of self is often a visceral contraction. And as I said, doing a sort of strong gesture could be very subtle, just that, that, you know, that up periscope that I described before. So when we do have access to a lot of peace and ease, we can sometimes miss, 
oh, this is so nice. Oh, my, my, my awareness, my mind is like a Mahabua. Oh, my mind is so marvelous. Will you look at this mind? But this selfing is the cause of suffering, right? Um, this great classic definition of the first noble truth from the Buddha. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates, the five khandhas, subject to clinging are suffering. So all of that, in brief, is clinging to the five aggregates is suffering. When the Buddha talked about the aggregates, the, the, I think we've talked about them, form, feeling, perception, uh, sankara's consciousness in your study guide somewhere. Um, it's, always, it's nearly always panchupadhanakanda, the five aggregates subject to clinging. Because the aggregates themselves are not the problem. It's the clinging to them, right? And that's where, as the Buddha said, look and see, that's where you create a sense of self. So a lot of our meditation practice is looking at that because that's where the suffering comes in. I really like this uh, quote from Andy Olensky, who used to be the um, director of studies down at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. He says, we usually think, um, you know, we have a self and it keeps grasping onto things, wanting things, right? He says, what becomes clear through this analysis of moment-to-moment experience is that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or doesn't like, holds onto or push away, pushes away what is unfolding in the in experience. And what's, I think, um, so helpful about that is self as a verb, self as a process, something that we do to get what we think we want over and over again. When that doing doesn't happen, what's there? This is what the practice is revealing. So through our Vipassana practice, mindfulness practice, we're probably familiar with seeing and releasing identification with the body and mental formations, two of the aggregates, pretty familiar to us as, as you know, or, or learning, I should more say, learning to relate wisely to the body and to mental formations and the heart. Clinging and creating self out of perceptions and Vedana another level of subtleness, but that could be a whole talk about how we do that. But consciousness is one of the five aggregates. And the Buddha says, we create self, we cling to consciousness. This is perhaps the most subtle. Clinging or identifying with the knower. We've talked about this already, you know, this place in the center, behind the eyes, receiving at the ears, all of this stuff, you know, it happens. Douglas Harding can talk about not having a head, but there's a lot going on here, right? And we get fascinated by it. And it feels like the locus of where I am, somewhere back in here looking out through these headlamps of the eyes. 
So how do we, how do we start to practice with knowing when we're landing there? It's very subtle. It's actually, in some ways, a skillful, or it's a transitional place. You know, to to shift from being identified with the more gross aspects of experience and to see, you know, the knowing and recognize that, that's actually more skillful than, you know, identifying with our thoughts or whatever. But it's still not a place to land, as uh, Ajahn Mahabua pointed to. These practices, as we've said again and again, are more about letting go and stilling than accumulating, even of the subtlest sense of self. And it's energetic. You know, it's not like the self appears with big neon lights. Oh, there it is. I see you, Mara. It's the subtlest leaning into, contracting around, holding on to. And it's why this practice has to be as we've said, short moments many times. If we try to land somewhere, hold on to awareness, that's when we get into trouble. We need to keep re-clarifying, refreshing, seeing again, talk to a lot of people about just softening the gaze, doing some practice with your eyes open, and just letting everything settle. And then when, if something... You know, the levels of stickiness. Sometimes there's absolutely no stickiness or no content. The mind is literally can feel empty of, of uh, that kind of accumulation. Sometimes something will come up and we see it and it just, in the seeing, it lets go. Sometimes something has a little stickiness, but we just attend and it goes. And sometimes it's really sticky and we need to recognize that. And again, use the skillful means that I was talking about earlier. So, short moments many times, Guy gave the list. I was trying to uh, make his list into all R's because there were so many. There was turn and then all the rest were R's, you know. Recognize, realize, I don't have it in front of me. But I wanted to put another R in at the beginning, which is relax. And again, not just because it feels good, but because that actually invites this letting go, the self manifesting as contraction, as pressure. We relax physically, the mind relaxes, the sense of self relaxes. So rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat many times. Because this mana, this sense of self at the very subtlest of levels, is one of the last fetters to go before enlightenment. Mana, Asmi Mana, one of the last fetters to go. In that, in that, um, as that, that as a fetter isn't, you know, because we always, we, we usually translate mana as conceit or comparing and then talk about the judging mind and da da. It's not that kind of judging, it's the subtlest reification the subtlest sense of self and other. And it's very deep in our animal nature. I am. I exist. And to let that soften, we have to have so much patience and kindness and gentleness, equanimity and ease, 
as well as the clear seeing, you know, the deep um, opening insight that's so powerful. But the theme or what I want to come back to is, yes, trusting your experience, but knowing it can deepen or clarify or be more radiant, whatever word you would put there. And it's through letting go, not grasping on, and at subtler and subtler levels, and at this almost energetic level, the basic trust that has to hold this um, and lets us know for ourselves and trust for ourselves the, the, the freedom and the peace of opening to this empty awareness the spaciousness, the equanimity, and the, the, the clear seeing of the true nature. I mean, I, I like that image, you know, whether you talk about the emptiness of the room, but I also like, you know, swirling the water, and it's agitated, and it's agitated, and it's often cloudy or murky. You let it sit, you let it settle. That's its true nature. Clear, empty, still. And then from that place, we see what agitates us, what's, what's the disturbance, and let that go. I like this quote from Ajahn Chah. There's a shorter version in your study guide on, on page 11, quote 66. But he says, about this mind, in truth there is nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness... That gladness and, or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. That we think that it is, then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. Just like the leaf, which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. And then I'll end with, again, a a poem from from Maddie Weingast, The First Free Women. This is Mittakali, friend of the dark. I was always smart. If the path was good, the Dharma path, I figured it would make me even smarter. 
One night while meditating, I watched my thoughts piling themselves up all around me. My mind built a hut out of all those thoughts, then filled that hut. Soon it was a whole city, a whole world. Oh, my beautiful, beautiful thoughts. Who will look after you after I'm gone? I swear I could weep. I could weep for all of you. My sisters, do you really want to be free? Are you ready to leave behind all your precious little houses and make your home everywhere? It's not as hard as you might think. First stand up, then walk out the door. So let's just let the words settle. And thank you for your attention. We forgot to mention yesterday that it was June 21st, which is the summer solstice, so the longest day of the year. The sun didn't make the most of its capacity to shine yesterday, but it did today, so the sky is still somewhat luminous. So perhaps this might be a time to go out and enjoy the second longest day of the year with some walking and then come back for the last set with chanting.